Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today I have a new microphone. I'm testing this out to see if the sound quality is better than the old mic that I used before. Let me know if you notice a difference, if this one's better, or if I should switch back to the old one. Let me know. I think this one sounds better, but I could be wrong. But whew, anyway, I don't know about where you guys live, but where I live, it's very hot and humid. It's 82 Fahrenheit, which in Celsius, I would assume that's in the high 20s, maybe 27 or 26. So I'm doing this very lackadaisical today. I'm not overly exerting myself. (sighs) I'm just keeping it very calm, cool, and collected today as much as possible. And so today's episode, I wanted to look into the history of Lollapalooza because I found this fact so randomly one day. This was for an episode that I was doing research on. I can't recall off the top of my head which one, which episode that was, but I was looking into Guns N' Roses a little bit, especially when they were breaking up and Slash and Duff McKagan was forming a band with the lead singer of Stone Temple Pilots. For some reason, there was a weird reality TV show that happened on maybe VH1 or something. I can't recall what the name of it is off the top of my head. Something regarding like music wives or something, musical wives or whatever. And it had Duff McKagan and his wife and it had Perry Farrell and his wife and it had another couple. I can't recall what that couple was. But on that episode, they were going to Lollapalooza and they were showing like Perry Farrell talking about Lollapalooza and him hosting Lollapalooza. And I was like, wait a minute. Are you saying that Perry Farrell, the lead singer of Jane's Addiction, created Lollapalooza, which is insane to me because Lollapalooza is one of the biggest, most popular music festivals of all time next to Coachella. But Lollapalooza is massive. And I thought to myself, that is so fascinating. I would love to do some research into that one day when the time comes when I feel like researching it. And I thought, you know what? I was listening to a bit of Jane's Addiction the other day. And I was like, you know what, let's research a bit into how he even created Lollapalooza. Because for me, that is so interesting. Like how one person could just up and create an entire franchise, if you will, of festivals that are inhabited by thousands and thousands of people every single year in so many bands. It's mind blowing to me. This episode's going to be half and half looking into Perry Farrell and his upbringing and a little bit about Jane's addiction because perhaps some of you know about Lollapalooza, but you don't know who Jane's addiction are. You don't know who Perry Farrell is. I'm sure that that's entirely a possibility and vice versa. Perhaps some of you obviously know who Jane's addiction are, but you don't know anything about Lollapalooza or that he created it or how it came about. So I'm going to merge those two groups together and talk a bit about both. So sit back, relax. You know, this is the time. We're coming into the warm days here. We're coming into summer. I figure, you know what? Let's talk a bit about music festivals. And Lollapalooza happens sometime in the summer. I couldn't tell you when. I don't follow Lollapalooza. I've never been. I have no idea. So hey, this could give you some incentive to want to go to Lollapalooza now that you know some background information. But anyway, let's dive right into the early days of frontman for Jane's Addiction, Perry Farrell. And he was actually born Peretz Bernstein in Queens, New York. And he spent most of his childhood in Long Island, and then he moved to North Miami Beach, Florida. 
His father was a jeweler and his mother was an artist who sadly and tragically died by suicide when Perry was only three years old. And he wrote the songs Then She Did and Twisted Tales about his mother. So some of Perry's early musical influences included the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, Sly and the Family Stone, and James Brown. And then later on, as he started to get more into music, he then discovered David Bowie, Iggy Pop and the Stooges, and Lou Reed. After graduating from high school, Perry then moved to California in the early 1980s to live as a surfer. He wasn't even necessarily looking to do music. He just kind of predominantly wanted to live the California surf-subdued surfer life. And it was there that he lived in his car and made money by working construction and waiting tables. And apparently some of these jobs, especially waiting tables and being a busboy, were jobs that he loathed and that he wouldn't get a lot of respect from the people that he worked for. Then at this point, he started to think about, well, maybe I should then form some kind of musical career. While in Los Angeles, he created this band called Psycom, and this is a post-punk band. He became the frontman for this band. It didn't last for a very long time, though. They broke up around 1985. And then this is where Perry met Eric Avery through mutual friends. The two began jam sessions together, which would then become the initial formation for Jane's Addiction. And it was during this time that he officially started going by the name Perry Farrell. So he was going by his real official name as Peretz, but now he's going as Perry Farrell. As a play on the word peripheral, peripheral, Perry Farrell. He's really funny like that. You know, he's one of those people that I've learned in this, you know, of researching for this episode that he loves poetry. He's a poetry fanatic. He really loves using lyrics as a form of poetry. And I think that's just kind of what he likes to do. He likes words. And from what I recall, he loved to read the dictionary so that he could input new words from the dictionary into his lyrics and his poetry. So this, of course, makes perfect sense for me. Uh, so now, Jane's Addiction. This band made its name in the mid-1980s in LA by building up a really strong fan base based on their very high-energy shows in small LA rock clubs. That's what they were known for. They were known for their very um, eccentric, loud shows. And people in LA were really liking this at the time, and they were really gravitating to them, and so they started to slowly build up some kind of fan base. Jane's Addiction released only three albums at this point in time. Their first album, Jane's Addiction. Their second album, Nothing Shocking. And their third album, Ritual De Lo Habitual. That's a pretty fun one to say. Ritual De Lo Habitual. So they come out with these three albums, and I think the tunes that they're predominantly known for, at least from my recollection, because to be honest, I'm not a massive fan of Jane's Addiction. Like, I'm not over here saying I'm a big fan of them and I know all their music. I know their most popular songs, like Jane Says, which was a massive hit, and Been Caught Stealing. Those are like the two that I really like the most. And I'm sure there's another one that I like, I can't recall the name too, but anyway. Massive kind of... Red Hot Chili Peppers vibe, if you will. Like, that's very much so kind of what they were. They were very much so of the same ilk as the Chili Peppers, if you can imagine. If you've never heard of them before, you haven't heard of their music before, you can imagine that kind of L.A. rock scene from that time, pretty much. So, late in 1991, Jane's Addiction broke up due to tensions in the band over differing ideologies, mostly concerning drug use because Perry had a severe addiction to heroin, and 
at the time, he wasn't really getting the help for it. So that was kind of a big point of contention for the rest of the band. And it was around this time on their last tour for their Ritual, Delo Habitual album, that a rumor got started somehow. Who started this rumor? I have no idea. But someone started a rumor that Perry had contracted HIV. What does Perry do instead of being like, no, 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 I don't have HIV. He actually, for fun, messes with people and he uses this to his advantage and he would tease the audience with quote-unquote news of his supposed health would neither confirm nor deny the truth. It's just like a really interesting, weird kind of time for Gene's addiction and for Perry at large, I think, at this point. But a couple of years later, in 1997, Jane's addiction would reform for a brief reunion tour with Flea, the bassist for the Chili Peppers, replacing Eric Avery on bass, which is fascinating, actually. Like, the two of them, um, Jane's addiction and Red Hot Chili Peppers, from my understanding as well, they were pretty close. I mean, that makes sense. They're pretty much like the same somewhat ilk. Um, at least in their genre, they're kind of the same, so it makes sense to me. So Perry has sometimes been credited with revitalizing Coachella. Now that's an interesting fact as well. You know, he not only created Lollapalooza, but he's also credited as revitalizing and bringing to life Coachella because people really thought that Coachella would be over and done with by 1999, like that it wouldn't go on, that it was going to be it. Basically what had happened was the festival had a really bad first year in 1999. It was really not good for a multitude of reasons, basically. For what you could imagine a festival could go wrong, it happened at Coachella. And so Coachella was canceled in the year 2000 because, you know, they couldn't get any kind of headlining band and any kind of mainstream press or people to come through. So Coachella was canceled in the year 2000. So a year later in 2001, a decision was made to organize Coachella again. And they were really meticulous this time about how do we reform, how do we regroup, how do we revitalize Coachella in the best way possible so people can come through and it's actually going to be a good time. Just a few months before Coachella was set to happen, there was still no headlining group. So that's a major problem. From my understanding with festivals like this, you need the headlining group to then form the rest of the set list or what have you, the rest of the people to come through. You need that headlining band. That's imperative. So Perry decided, well, Coachella needs a headlining group. Why don't we reform Gene's Addiction for Coachella and get people coming through? And at this time, he was already the master <laughs> of Lollapalooza. He had already created Lollapalooza at this time. So it helped to draw a large crowd to Coachella. The fact that Gene's Addiction was reforming for Coachella. And this worked. It actually allowed Coachella to make a profit, which was something that didn't happen previous years and attempts before. So Perry is like hailed as the king of festivals <laughs> because he now had a foothold in Lollapalooza and helping to bring Coachella back into the mainstream. So this began a Coachella tradition of reuniting at least one major artist each year for the festival, which is quite fascinating to me. It's just so... I don't know, like, I've never been to a music festival, but I could only imagine that when you go there, it's very much so about the music, it's about the people, it's very kind of almost animalistic, like, you know, you're there in the heat, in the summertime, you're there in your festival clothes, 
and you're there listening to bands throughout the whole day. It's just like, I would imagine it's a really fun experience. And so to bring people together at a major festival, not only like Lollapalooza, but Coachella, I think is really nice. I think that's a really cool thing that Perry ends up doing. So Perry, again, toured with Jane's Addiction in 2001 and in 2003. And it was in 2003 that Jane's Addiction released an album called Strays. It quickly became one of their best-selling records and was certified gold in the United States and silver in the UK, which, I mean, that's good. But it's no platinum status. You know, platinum, I think, is like the top that you really want to go to. So gold and silver is pretty respectable. Not bad. Eric Avery, the bassist, again left the band in late 2009, leaving Perry, Dave Navarro, and Perkins as the remaining members of Jane's Addiction. So the band with Dave Satik on bass, I hope I said his name correctly, I apologize. Um, Dave on bass, he came in and he replaced Eric in the band, then released the album The Great Escape Artist in 2011, and they've continued to tour since then. From my understanding, again, I don't closely follow Jane's Addiction. I'm not a huge fan of their music, but I can respect them for what they are and what they did. So fair enough. So that is the basic rundown of Perry Farrell and Jane's Addiction and their music. Now we're going to get into the bulk of the episode. Lollapalooza. This is fascinating. This is truly, really fascinating to me. Before we go on, because it's so hot, I'm going to take a sip of water. Please hold for a moment. Okay, so I'm going to take you back to the 90s in 1991, to be specific. Prior to Jane's addiction dissolving at this time in 1991, Perry, Ted Gardner, and Mark Geiger created Lollapalooza as a farewell tour for Jane's addiction. That's what it was going to be. Lollapalooza was not meant to be a long-lasting festival. It was only meant to be purposefully, specifically for the ending of Jane's Addiction. The first, very first, Lollapalooza tour had a pretty diverse collection of bands. And from what I remember, Perry said there was about seven, seven acts at Lollapalooza the first year. And it was a very commercial success. And the thing about Lollapalooza, we think of festivals now as being like a destination thing. Like you go to one specific place and that's where the festival happens. But Lollapalooza back then, again, it was a tour. It was a tour for the band. So Lollapalooza would go from city to city. And it was 20 cities that they went across North America in 1991. It was amazing to hear that this is what they did. It's just so fascinating. Can you imagine that festivals today was actually kind of like a tour and it went from city to city across the country? That would be that would be quite interesting. But of course, we know that most festivals are kind of like destination based. In a 2020 article in Spin Magazine, they rated the first Lollapalooza Festival as the best concert on a list of the 35 greatest concerts of the last 35 years. So that's pretty significant, I would say. And now some of you might be wondering to yourself, what the hell is Lollapalooza? What does that word even mean? Is that a real word? Is that a fake word? What's the story with Lollapalooza as a whole? Well, Lollapalooza is actually a real word, and it dates back as late as the 19th century, early 20th century. So we're talking late 1800s to early 1900s vernacular here, right? They used a bunch of strange, weird words, out-of-date words that we wouldn't use now, right? So Lollapalooza was one of those words that they used to say. 
Um, it was an American phrase meaning an extraordinary or unusual thing, person, or event. Also, it meant an exceptional example or instance. And of course, like I mentioned before, Perry really likes words. He loves looking at the dictionary to pick out interesting new words to use in his poetry and his music. So Perry said himself that he possibly could have picked up this word, Lollapalooza, upon watching a Three Stooges short film where one of them must have shouted Lollapalooza and he just picked that up and was like, oh my God, that's the best. And then, of course, he looked it up in the dictionary to see if it was an actual word and it was an actual word. So it's very fascinating. The second definition for Lollapalooza is actually a large lollipop. So Lollipalooza, if you will. But yeah, so it means both. But so Perry uses like that dual meaning to his advantage with this because he paid an homage to this double meaning with the character in the festival's original logo where this character holds up a lollipop. I think that's just so really, really cool when you use that kind of double entendre like that to kind of play it up, right? And it just, it creates a really beautiful, nice, put together package. And I'm just very pleased with that. I, I love that. So Lollapalooza was also in part inspired by other gigs festivals at the time in England, such as Reading Festival. That was a massive one. You know, this wasn't something new, like festivals weren't a new thing. Of course, we have Woodstock. That was not, you know, the festivals were not a new concept when Perry created Lollapalooza, but Lollapalooza as a whole and everything that it brought certainly influenced Coachella and all these other festivals that we have now. So that's the important distinction to make here. And again, unlike most festivals where it was a one-time destination event, like Woodstock was three days in one place in New York, Lollapalooza toured across the whole of the U.S. from mid-July until late August 1991 on its first go-around. The first show, again, well, this is kind of very important. Like, as time goes on, they wanted to have more diverse artists and bands come on. The first lineup of Lollapalooza was made up of artists from the alternative rock, industrial music section, <laughs> and rap genre. So it spanned a couple of different genres there for everybody to come through and have a good time. And Lollapalooza premiered for the first time, the first date, in Phoenix, Arizona on July 18th, 1991. And it was covered by a reporter for MTV, which ended by the journalist Dave Kendall saying that Lollapalooza could be the tour of the summer. And it absolutely was. And it was the tour of a lifetime because Lollapalooza is one of the biggest festivals ever. And then the tour eventually finished in Seattle on August the 28th, 1991. So they went everywhere, absolutely everywhere. Another key concept for Lollapalooza was the inclusion of non-musical acts such as like they would do a whole plethora of things they would have sideshow performers shale and monks randomly enough and like other circus acts kind of like virtual reality games display tents for art like it was kind of like an art and music festival similarly to what woodstock intended to be an art and music festival it's the same concept Perry is quoted as saying, basically, I'm bored. I just want to see things that are unexpected and slightly bizarre. The way Barnum and Bailey perceived putting on a show, well, they had a different angle. So 
basically what he's saying is, yeah, he just wants it to be a spectacle. He wants it to be something unique that you'll remember for the rest of your life. Like you go to see a music festival, but then you show up and there's like these random sideshow acts. Like, ugh, there are some really disgusting things that have happened at Lollapalooza that I will not mention or restate here because it's going to make me sick. But if you can imagine like swallowing swords and things of that nature, no, I will not repeat those here because ugh. But things like that. David Blaine, Chris Angel, mindfuckery kind of things happening is basically what that was. And of course, Lollapalooza became a surprise massive success. For Dave Grohl, and Dave Grohl is of course from Nirvana and the Foo Fighters, Dave Grohl, who saw it in Los Angeles, the festival helped change the mentalities in the music industry. This is what he thought. And the Butthole Surfers opened the first day playing in front of a big audience and Susie Sue and the Banshees, quote, were like the Led Zeppelin of that scene. He said that it felt like something was happening that was the beginning of it all. And yeah, absolutely. Dave Grohl is a very smart man. He definitely knows what is the crack. So absolutely. He said, this is something big. This is the best thing since sliced bread. We know what's going on here. And Ice-T actually was interviewed on the opening day in Phoenix as saying this, I know it's going to be a tour people are going to talk about for a long time. And yeah, for sure. So, I mean, we can't have a massive success without plummeting to some kind of failure, right? Well, this happens. So the explosion of alt-rock in the early 90s really helped to propel Lollapalooza forward because this is the genre that Jane's Addiction was. And the whole point for Lollapalooza was that Jane's Addiction wanted to bring on not necessarily the most mainstream of bands and artists to come along. That's what they really wanted to do initially. But then, of course, as time went on, it got a bit dicey. So it was noted that the second Lollapalooza show was organized in a different way and included bands who had already achieved commercial success. For example, there was one show in particular in the 90s where Metallica is on the bill. And people are like, what the hell is Metallica doing here? Like, this is not what we expected. What the hell is this? And people were really not happy because the crowds that showed up for Metallica were like proper headbangers and like mosh pitters. And like, it just was not a cool thing at all. Apparently at this time in the 90s, there was a whole thing about machismo, like macho bravado that was exuded in male artists at the time. And Perry Farrell was not about including machismo um, bravado, I guess is the way to put it. He wasn't a fan of that whole kind of like I'm a man and I'm in the rock scene and I'm gonna rock your face kind of like whole thing about it. So he was also not a fan of what was happening either, but it was weird because he was the one that was putting on the show. So I don't know. So journalist Kurt Lauder commented that by 1992, the music that had once been trumpeted as alternative was quickly becoming mainstream and the second Lollapalooza reflected the shift. The 1992 headliners included such acts as Soundgarden and Red Hot Chili Peppers, bands that were hardly strangers to the mainstream pop charts. And then, of course, grunge was already becoming king. So the 92 and 93 and including 94 festivals were heavily lean, leaning into the grunge and alternative rock kind of scene there unusually featured an additional rap artist. And again, rap was becoming big as well. So it was just like, hmm, a big question mark here. Mosh pits and crowd surfing became part of the concerts, I think, as most festivals do. But again, I think for Lollapalooza, at least upon his first few shows, was like, uh, 
questionable thing that was happening. So once the first Lollapalooza show in 1991 went down, they then started to slowly expand the number of stages that would be given to other artists. But from my recollection and understanding, festivals have multiple stages for different um, groups of acts to come through. It's not just one main stage. It's like about eight or nine or ten different stages with different crowds and things like that. So Lollapalooza was only one stage. But then as the time went on, it increased to like two, three, four, you know, as time went on, it included more and more and more stages for more and more people to come through. And people were already starting to complain that the festival had extremely high ticket prices as well as high costs for food and water at the shows. And that's not surprising to me either. It's pretty much well known that when you go to these kind of shows, you expect high ticket prices and extremely high costs for food and water, which is crazy. It's ridiculous. It's unorthodox, in my opinion. It should not be this way. But unfortunately, this is the (laughs) corporate greed that gets played into people that just want to be in the music that, well, you have to pay an arm and a leg to want to see your favorite artist. So unfortunately, this is what it was coming to. So one of the most kind of famous things that happened for Lollapalooza was in 1994. Nirvana was scheduled to headline, but reportedly they were being offered nearly $10 million to do it. But Kurt Cobain, when he was alive, he turned it down. He was like, no, 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 we're, we're no, 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 we're not doing this. This is beneath us. We're not doing this. Sorry. Keep your $10 million and shove it. Bye. The band officially dropped out of the festival on April 7th, 1994. And unfortunately, Kurt Cobain was found dead in his Seattle house the following day on April 8th. It's almost like it had to be that they wouldn't headline Lollapalooza 1994 at all. Kurt had passed away, unfortunately. It's very, very sad. Like, apparently, from what I've heard from, like, firsthand accounts of people that had gone there, in 1994, that everyone was very sad about Kurt Cobain's passing and they were honoring him, like the Smashing Pumpkins were there and they were honoring him. Courtney Love made a guest appearance at several of the shows at the festival and she spoke to the crowds and things like that. Very, very interesting kind of moment in Lollapalooza history. So by 1996, Perry decided to focus his energy to produce his new festival project called ENIT, Enit. And he didn't participate in producing Lollapalooza in 1996. So not only was Perry not predominantly present with Lollapalooza in 96, which was very different compared to the other shows, but again, acts like Metallica (laughs) would come in and it just reinforced the whole thing of Lollapalooza is changing and it's becoming mainstream and this is not what we expected or wanted. Weirdly enough, Perry quit the tour in protest. I just, that's the whole thing. Like, Perry wanted this to be a peaceful festival. I understand the whole thing of not wanting to have this kind of, quote-unquote, like, macho bravado image that Metallica would bring into your peaceful, (laughs) almost like summer of love kind of festival vibe. I get it. But Perry quit the tour in protest. He He protested his own festival. Strange. Very strange. That's what happened. He protested his own festival. Okay. Responding to the controversial Metallica incident, Lollapalooza made efforts to revive its relevance to audiences. They tried very, very, very hard. The festival booked eclectic acts such as country star Waylon Jennings in 96. And in the following year in 97, it emphasized heavily on electronic groups such as The Orb and The Prodigy. The Prodigy? Absolutely. Put them on. I don't know who the orb are. I can't really vouch for them. 
But fair enough. They wanted to really try to get the audience back because they had lost some of the audience from feeding into the corporate mainstream aspect of the money machine that Lollapalooza was and, you know, putting out a certain image. And that's not what the fans wanted. So they were like, we give you the prodigy. Is that a fair? Is that a fair deal? Fair trade? You buy a ticket and we give you the prodigy. Is that fair enough? No, (laughs) it would not be enough. 97 were proved to be the final tour for Lollapalooza at the time. The festival failed because they couldn't find anybody to headline the 1998 show, so it was canceled for a couple of years. And you would think that this is where Lollapalooza would be dead, done, dusted. There would be no more. Lollapalooza would have a tombstone marked Lollapalooza 91 through 98 done. Well, no, it was revived in 2004. And this is where they made more changes. They decided to expand the dates for Lollapalooza. Instead of it being one, they would have it be two days per city that they would tour. However, poor ticket sales forced the tour to be canceled. So people were still not having Lollapalooza. But in 2005, this is where they made another change. The festival would now be considered a destination festival instead of it being a tour of multiple cities. They focused their destination for Grant Park, Chicago, and Illinois. This is where they really wanted to have Lollapalooza. Perry apparently really liked Grant Park for what it was. He noted specifically that he didn't want people to be seated. He didn't want to have like an arena thing where people had to sit. He really wanted it to be an open concept, you know, an open area. And the festival hosted an estimated 400,000 people since then. And it sells out annually. So it does very, very, very well for itself. With the changes that it made, people seem to, okay, we'll give Lollapalooza a try. You know, we'll give them a chance again to redeem themselves. And they have. Lollapalooza is one of the largest and most iconic music festivals in the world. And one of the largest and longest running festival in the U.S. at large. So again, give it up to Perry Farrell for really doing the thing. So that was basically, in a nutshell, Lollapalooza and how Perry Farrell created Lollapalooza. The ups and downs that happened in the middle, the success, the failure, the continued failure, but then the absolutely even more so higher success rate at the end. Now, to be fair, I can't really tell you which festival is better when you compare like Lollapalooza to Coachella. I'm the wrong person to ask about that. I have no idea. To me, they're all the same. I guess it depends on like the bands that are offered to each one and maybe other kind of acts and maybe ticket prices, I would imagine, would maybe sway one festival for the other one. But again, I'm the wrong person to have any kind of opinion on that. I'm just a spectator over it all. But I hope you guys enjoyed and that you learned something today that you hadn't learned about before. And hey, this might be good, um, propaganda is not the right word. This might be a good boost (laughs) for those that are curious about Lollapalooza if you've never been and maybe this year now that you've learned some information, if the tickets are still available, if maybe you want to check it out if you're around the Chicago area and you want to go, now that you've learned some information and you want to support Perry Farrell, then fair enough. Absolutely. Go ahead and check it out. Maybe one day I'll go to a festival and I'll see what it's all about. I don't know. For me, I'm fine with just seeing particular bands and going to their concerts and gigs. But 
that is going to be it for today. Please, you guys, look after yourself. It's getting hotter and hotter and hotter these days. I have my water here with me. I am absolutely dying. So I am going to leave it here and enjoy the rest of my day. I hope you guys have a great week, and I will see you guys next Wednesday with another episode of On The Mix. Talk to you guys later. Bye, guys. Bye.